have, have you ever been lost as a kid? You know, like, like at a theme park or in a large crowd, you're going around someplace where there's a lot of people, and then you look up, and all of a sudden, your parents are nowhere to be found. Have you ever, ever experienced that before, some of you? Or, or, or maybe to put it uh, a little less charitably, uh, have your parents ever left you behind somewhere? <laughs> have you ever been lost? It, it, it's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Right? You, you think you're with your parents, you think you're with those that are close to you, and you look up, and all of a sudden, they're nowhere around, and you don't know where they're at. Well, uh, imagine not only being lost as a kid, but imagine also as a child being lost out at sea. Such was the experience of Tyler Smith and Heather Brown. These 17-year-olds had gone swimming near St. Augustine, Florida to celebrate Senior Skip Day. It was their senior year. They had a senior skip day, so they were going to go swimming. However, they got caught in a current that pulled them further and further away from the land until they were over two miles away from the beach. After several hours, of fighting to get back to shore, they found themselves getting weaker and weaker and also very afraid. Can you imagine? They feared that they wouldn't make it and that they were going to die. Now, what would you do in that moment? Right, You're two miles away from shore. You spent hours trying to get back there. You're getting weak, you're getting fatigued, you're probably also getting cold. Think for a moment, what, what would you do? You know, what, you know what they did? They began to pray. They began to call out, God, please help us. God, please save us. Well, moments after they started praying, they looked up, and what did they see heading towards them? A 53-foot yacht. And you're never going to believe what the name of the yacht was. You know what the name of the boat was? Amen. <laughs> True story. They're praying, Lord, Lord, help us. Save us. And they lift their eyes, and what's coming towards them? A giant amen. <laughs> when the two teens boarded the yacht, those on the amen immediately covered them with towels, blankets, and comforters because they were concerned that they might have hypothermia. Well, thankfully, within about 10 minutes, the two teens were back to normal. The owner of the yacht is a gentleman named Eric Wagner. And he bought the Amen several years ago. And when he was interviewed by CNN about this miraculous rescue, he confessed that he said, quote, I had no way of knowing that the boat would be the literal answer to two prayers of some Florida teenagers. You know, it's terrifying. 
It's a terrifying experience to not only be lost, but to be swept out to sea, tossed to and fro by the waves. I mean, those two teenagers, they thought they were going to lose their lives. A terrifying experience. But faith, you know what's even more dangerous than that? What's even more dangerous than being swept out to sea is being swept away spiritually. I don't think I need to convince you that we live in a very unique time in history. With the advent of the internet, we have access to all sorts of information. Indeed, we just don't have access. We're actually bombarded, are we not, by all sorts of information, ways of thinking, and philosophies. Ideas and philosophies that I would suggest and argue, many of which are contrary to the Word of God. And woe to the Christian who thinks or believes that they are immune from being led astray by such notions. You know, I'm, I'm quite certain that those two teens on Senior Skip Day they did not think when they got in the water that they were going to be swept out two miles away from shore. Yet they did. They weren't as strong as they thought they were. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is, how can we as a church, how can we as Christians, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, how can we keep ourselves from being swept away spiritually. That is, how can we not be tossed to and fro by the deceitful schemes in worldly wisdom that bombards us daily? Or to put it another way, how, how can we be mature, strong in the faith? Well, this I want to suggest is the very question the Apostle Paul answers in our text this morning. If you would, please turn within your Bibles to Ephesians 4. That's page 977 in that paperback Bible. We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians for months now. And this morning we're going to be studying chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And as we're turning there, let me give you the context. Last week, we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and we noted that beginning in chapter 4, there's a shift in focus from the Apostle Paul. He goes from, from doctrine uh, to duty. He goes from creed to conduct. Now he's going to take the glorious truths he's expounded upon of what Christ has done for us, what God in Christ has done for us in the first three chapters, and apply them to the Christian life. And you recall the first theme that he brought up, that he addressed, was this theme of unity, Christian unity. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, we see that the Apostle Paul, he urges us, in light of all this, he urges us to do something, and that is to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. 
That is, the weight and significance of what God has done in saving you in Jesus Christ, there should be a balance that that should influence the way you conduct your lives and live your lives. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And thankfully, we didn't have to guess as to what that looks like. Paul showed us how. That is, we're to wear Christ-like attire. Right? He calls us to to put on humility and gentleness and patience and to bear with one another in love. That's the Christ-like attire we're to adorn ourselves with, but we're supposed to do so as we move towards unity. When he says they're eager, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit. However, it's important that unity does not mean uniformity. And we know that's the case for what Paul says next in our passage this morning, because I want you to notice that in this next section, Paul stresses, listen to this, diversity in gifting and roles amid unity for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Paul just urges us to walk in a manner worthy. He goes on about how we have one God, one faith, one baptism, and how God is over all and in all. And then he reads this, or he writes this rather, in verse 7. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he's referring here to Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? I understand this to be referring to his incarnation. Philippians 2, right? Nathan from John Philippians. Christ, he came down to earth. He descended to earth. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So this Christ who came to earth, lived the perfect life we failed to live, died the death we deserved to die on the cross for sins, he then was raised from the dead and then ascended back high to the highest position of authority. But notice he ascended in order to fill And what does he fill? Well, part of the things that he fills is the church with certain things. Look there in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And why did the ascended Christ give the church these leaders? Notice verse 12, to equip the saints. You know who that is? That's you. That's every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave these leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what's the aim here of the work of ministry? For building up the body of Christ. Notice, until we all attain the unity of the faith, the the, the shared truths we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These have been given to equip the saints to do ministry so that the body of Christ would be mature. A strong man, because then notice what he says there in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul doesn't want us to be like those two teenagers who are, who are brought out not by a rip current, but by false teaching. He wants us to be strong and mature. So notice, how can we do this as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? What role do we share in this? Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. And now notice the body's work here. From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, what happens? Makes the body grow, grow into maturity so that it builds itself up in love. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. This is God's good word. I have a buddy at the gym who recently he injured his right shoulder. This meant that he could no longer do bench presses or shoulder presses until everything was on his right side, at least until everything was healed up. Now, most people, especially guys, it's very wise that if you get a shoulder, shoulder injury, just stay away from the gym. Don't, you don't, you don't want to ruin it or make it any more injured. But that's not what my friend did. No, instead, he came to the gym, and what he did was he exclusively worked out his left side. He would do one-armed bench presses. He would do one-arm shoulder presses. And what was crazy <laughs> is that he started making really big gains <laughs> doing these exercises on his shoulder press and his bench press, all the while not doing a single thing to his right side and his right shoulder. Well, after a couple weeks of watching my buddy do this, I said, hey, man, I asked him, I said, aren't you just a little bit, just a little bit concerned that your left side is going to be disproportionately larger than your right side? You know what he said? His, his response actually surprised me. He said, actually, Aaron, he said, research has shown that the best way to prevent an injured arm or a shoulder or a leg from becoming atrophied is by actively working out the opposite side. This is to say, when you work out the non-injured arm or leg, you're actually strengthening the opposite one as well. I didn't believe him. <laughs> I didn't. I'm like, yeah, nice story. So I looked it up, and sure enough, study after study confirms this. Now, the researchers don't know why this is, 
Many just chalk it up to mystery. Yet what is not a mystery is the fact that each body part is dependent on the others for its well-being. And we see the same truth taught in the verses I just read. Faith, as Paul makes clear in the passage I just read, especially those last two verses, 15 through 16, we learn this important truth, and that is Christian maturity is a team effort. Christian maturity is a team effort. This, I want to argue, is what Paul's main thesis or the main idea is of this text. Christian maturity is a team effort. That is, please hear me, you cannot become spiritually mature apart from the body of Christ, the church. You cannot. We need each other. I need you. You need me. We need collectively one another. And notice how clearly Paul makes this point. First notice what he writes there in verses 12 to 13. He says, it's the church members who are called to do the work of ministry so that, notice, quote, we will attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a deeper understanding of the personal work of Jesus Christ. Notice he says, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Then down in verse 16 when Paul writes, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just as my friend was working on his left side, it was working properly. It was actually helping this side grow. So do you see? We could say this. The body builds the body. It, it makes it strong, mature. We, the local church, are the instruments God uses to grow believers into spiritual maturity so that they will not be swept away spiritually. Commenting on verse 16, John Piper has insightfully written this. He says, the word whole is important. The whole body builds the body. That point is emphasized in the words, according to the working of each individual part. The whole body, that is each individual part in the body properly functioning, causes the growth of the body. This is why people who are not active or attend a church cannot be spiritually mature. No matter what they might say, I'll run into people who, and you know, we get in a conversation and eventually it comes out that I'm a pastor and uh, I try not to lay it as much as possible, but we'll, we'll get talking and they will say, I'm a very spiritually mature person. I'm like, oh, where do you worship? Oh, you know, I'm not really into going to church that much. Not really part of the church. They might say they're spiritually mature, but not according to this passage or other texts in Scripture. Christian maturity is a team effort. 
We need one another. So here's the million-dollar question. How do we get there? How do we obtain Christian maturity? It's, it's clearly a team effort, as Paul spells out here. But how, how, what are we to do? What are our roles? Well, the good news is we don't have to guess. I'm going to argue that Paul in this text, he identifies four actions we must take if we are to grow in maturity. If we're not only to grow into maturity, but if we're to help one another grow in maturity. And the first one is this. To grow into maturity, you must employ your gift. Look at verses 7 and 10 again. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us. That's you. That's me. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things employ your gift. Uh, if you don't mind, by show of hands, how many of you received some kind of gift card for Christmas this year? Yeah, almost, almost all of us, right? Uh, according to uh, CBS News, the typical American home has an average of $300 in unused gift cards. These cards are often misplaced, accidentally thrown out, or just partially redeemed. In fact, according to a brand new report by creditcards.com, listen to this, nearly half of all Americans collectively are holding onto $21 billion of unused gift cards. How many unused gift cards are you holding onto? <laughs> Faith, if, if we're going to grow in Christian maturity, then we must begin where Paul begins, and that is with what Christ has accomplished for us. Notice how as he's talking about maturity, the first thing he talks about is what Christ has done in verses 7 through 10. In verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68 and he relates it to Christ's triumph in authority. Now, in the original context of Psalm 68, God is the divine warrior who ascends to his throne after defeating his enemies. Paul applies this to Jesus, who came to earth in one victory for us at Calvary. Amen? At his death, he defeated the invisible and hostile forces, and he won the victory. He secured our salvation by dying for our sins. Now Paul says he ascended to heaven to the place of victory. In fact, he's in a place of authority beyond what we can imagine. As verse 10 states, he descended is the one who has ascended higher than all the heavens. And the victorious Christ, 
the Christ who saved you through his death and resurrection, he gives his people gifts. As verse 7 states, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now please note, as the context makes very clear, this is not saving grace. But as several commentators have correctly pointed out, this is grace for ministry. That is, Christ has given Christians, each one of us, grace to do ministry. And this is why I say, employ your gift. The grace was given to serve. The grace was given to work. The grace was given to do ministry. All of you have been given it. As Paul further elaborates there in verses 9 through 10, Jesus Christ, friend, <clears throat> Jesus Christ did not descend to earth, live the perfect life you failed to live, die the death you deserve to die on the cross, rise from the dead to save you from your sins, and then ascend far above all the heavens for you not to redeem or to use or to employ the gift of grace he has given you to do ministry. Christian, Christ has given you with grace to do ministry. The question is, are you using it? Are you leaning into it? Are you trusting God to supply it? Or is it like many of the unused gift cards in your home? I mean, how awesome is Jesus? How wonderful is our Savior? How kind? Here's just another example of how our Savior gives and gives and gives. He gives his life to save us. And then he gives us grace to enable us and to empower us to do the work of ministry. By his death and resurrection, he saves us. And in his ascension, he gives us grace to enable us to do ministry. How kind. So, so you know what this means on a practical level, I want to suggest? It means Faith Community Church, which I have to, I have to say, one of the many things I'm proud about this church is how faithful so many of you are in serving in a, in a variety of capacities. I hope this encourages you because I think what this text is getting at is it means that whenever you don't feel like serving, whenever you don't feel like getting up so you have to arrive at church early, Christian, remember, God has given you grace in that very moment to serve so that you would be building up the body. He's given you grace to serve in the nursery, grace to help with kids to faith, Grace to help set up chairs and sound equipment. Grace to bless others through our hospitality. Grace to lead a community group. Our victorious Savior has given us grace. Amen? Let us be found faithful to rely and lean in on that. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself not actively using that grace or actively serving within the church, 
I'd love to speak with you and direct you to ministries and ways that you could help build up the body. But then second, to grow maturity, you also must receive training. Look at what we see there in verses 11 and 12. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, and what's their purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Um, Bud Wilkinson was the football coach for the Oklahoma Sooners many years ago, and a young reporter once asked him, he said, Coach, <laughs> he says, how has the game of football contributed to the overall health and fitness of America? You know what Wilkinson said? To the reporter's shock, Wilkinson responded, it's not contributed at all. What do you mean? stammered the reporter. And Wilkinson said this. He said, he said, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 22,000 fans in the stadium desperately needing exercise. <laughs> but you know what? Sadly, that can often be the church, can it? A few people tirelessly serving while a great multitude sits back and watch. Yet notice that is not the picture given in this passage, is it? No, the picture given is that Christ gives leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That is, leaders equip and train members to serve. Notice... Paul lists four different leaders within the church who are given to equip the saints. You can see them there listed in verse 11. Apostles and prophets had a foundational role in receiving and proclaiming the mystery of Jesus Christ. They were given to establish the church. But I understand that the role is now assumed by the canonical writings of the New Testament. The apostles and the prophets with their unique endowments did not extend beyond the apostolic age or there to set the foundation. Next are evangelists. That phrase evangelist occurs only two other times in the New Testament. Did you know this? Once describing Philip in Acts 21.8 and then Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.5. As we survey the biblical data, they are those whom God has especially equipped to travel from place to place with the gospel. You could say it's kind of like a church planter. This description would apply to both Philip and Timothy who traveled around preaching the gospel. Then there are shepherds. And this is referring to pastors since pastor literally means, yes, shepherd. <laughs> And in the New Testament, we find the terms pastor, overseer, and elder used interchangeably. And in addition to caring for the spiritual needs of the church, a pastor, we learn from Jesus, is to make feeding the sheep a top priority. As Christ three times 
charged Peter to do in John 21. That is, to faithfully do the work of a shepherd, a pastor must concentrate and devote himself to preaching and teaching, not his own thoughts, not his own ideas, but the Word of God. This is why faith, I understand one of my primary roles as your pastor to preach God's Word to you. That is to feed you as Christ has commanded the Scriptures. I am to labor in this glorious endeavor for it is one of the chief means the proclamation of God's Word, one of the chief means God uses to equip you to do the work of the ministry and to grow you to maturity, to have a full knowledge of the Son of God. Indeed, we see something of this emphasis on preaching in the next phrase when it says teachers, don't we? Now, there is some uncertainty as to whether shepherds and teachers refer to two different roles or one single shepherd-teacher role. Uh, some see it as two. Others see them as not two distinct groups, but kind of overlapping. So that in this view, all pastors must be teachers, but not all teachers in the church are pastors. Yet what is certain is that such leaders are gifts. They're gifts to the church to equip members for ministry. This is why it is errant and very unbiblical to think that the church, you know what, we simply pay the pastor, we simply pay the staff, they do the work. I've, I've known of churches like this. In fact, I had a, a dear friend who <laughs> pastored in a church like this where the members thought was, we pay the pastor and he does all the work. I mean, that's why we're paying him, right? No, the pastor is called to train and equip the saints to do the work. And the reason why I say receive training because the whole thing's not going to work if those saints aren't ready to receive training. So, so here's a question. What do you think would change in your life if you embraced this perspective? What if you viewed the church not as a place to go to hear an inspiring message, but as a place where you are trained and equipped to do ministry? What if you came eager to learn how to serve others better or how to counsel others better? What if you came eager to serve? Not like, oh, I got to work in the nursery this Sunday. Oh, I got I got to do setup. Man, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to be down with the kids today. Got to get her early to do the coffee for the hospitality. Got to set up chairs for the discipleship hour. What if that mentality changed? Eager to serve so that I could help build up the body. Eager to learn in our discipleship hour classes, in our small groups on Sunday morning in the kitchen. Eager to learn how I can apply what's being taught so I can serve and build up the body. You know, this, 
this received training. This is why we just did a community group leaders training this past week. Right? The goal was to equip the community group leaders to do the work of ministry. This is why we had our called to counsel training all last year. We want to equip you, the saints, without to encourage and counsel and point one another to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we launched our discipleship hour at faith. The question, though, that I want to press is, do you view yourself as someone whose role is to receive the training? That I must come to learn to be equipped so I can then go and do. Because notice that's the third thing. To grow in maturity, you must then serve the church. Look there at verses, again, 12 through 14. So they're given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Again, I want you to see how all of this is moving towards this goal of maturity, the body of Christ, until we all, not just some, we're going to leave them behind, sorry, scragglers, no, so that we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. What a beautiful picture of Christian maturity. Verse 14, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Again, I just want to lay upon our hearts, notice the stated goal of this, of serving in the church, of doing the work of the ministry. Hopefully what's clear there for you in verse 13 through 14, it, it could just best be summarized as maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and notice what's happening here. Christian, one of the ways you become mature in Christ is by serving. And, and one of the ways you also become mature is through receiving serving of others. This is what I mean when I say Christian maturity is a team effort. So faith, listen, counseling one another, teaching one another, loving one another, serving one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, this is how we attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is how we become mature and keep ourselves from being deceived by deceitful schemes. Now, Paul Tripp, I think he captures the vision of this passage best. He writes this. He says, Christian, hear this. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense. Something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. And then he says this, what is that thing? God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into the kingdom, into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness. And listen, he wants you to be part of it. Faith, we're called to be eager servants, not immature consumers. 
So I want to encourage you with fresh eyes, view every interaction you have with others as a ministry opportunity where you can point people to Jesus, which leads to the, the final action that I think we must take to grow maturity, and that is speak the truth in love. So he talks about how we, he doesn't want us to be tossed to and fro by waves. Then in verse 15 he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're to speak the truth in love. And I want to suggest that this text has a doctrinal emphasis to it. Right? We're to speak the truth, the truth of God's word. As we speak the truth in love, we build up the body into maturity. Uh, several years ago, NPR aired a segment on dying well and what the living can learn from the lives of the deceased. And the, the segment, it, it featured a marketing expert named Lux, and he and his employees, they examined 2,000 editorial non-paid New York Times obituaries over a 20-month period. And they were surprised at what the most common word was in all the obituaries. You know what it was? The most common word in all the obituaries was the word help. The segment went on to say that people want to be remembered for how they helped others. You know what? That is a noble aspiration, isn't it? And I want to suggest that Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, identifies one of the chief ways that we can help others, and that is by speaking the truth in love. Wouldn't you love it to be said of you when you're six feet under, but with the, in the presence of the Lord, that it was said of you, that person, that woman, that man, they spoke the truth in love. Now what does that look like? to speak the truth in love. Well, since Jesus clearly teaches that all speech flows from our hearts, it's appropriate for us to examine our motivations. You see, to speak the truth in love means that whatever hard truth I'm going to say to you, I'm speaking those words first out of a love for God. I want to please Him. I want to love God first, and then second, out of a love for you, and the order is very important. Here's why this matters. You see, other people's sins can make my life miserable. Can I get an amen anywhere on that, right? Have you noticed this? Other people's sins can bring about great inconvenience. Indeed, other people's sin can also bring about pain in my life. And I can be tempted to tell them a hard truth. Not out of a love for God or a love for them, but out of a love for me. 
And when me and my concerns are my greatest treasure, bad fruit is going to emerge. You see, to effectively speak the truth in love, for God's good word to have its intended effect, then my chief motivation, my chief treasure needs to be God. That is, I must want God's purposes more than my own. I must want you to benefit from what I have to say. So practically this means when I speak the truth in love, I'm not going to put you down. I'm not going to call you names. It also means I'm going to approach you with a gentle spirit and ask questions to make sure I really understand what's going on before I speak truth in love. And then I'm going to invite you to consider what God has to say. Faith speaking the truth in love means God's truth stays pure because it's not bent by other motivations whether it be the anger of man or the fear of man. And then please, please hear me. Then once we speak the truth in love, you know what we must do? We must entrust to the Lord the other person's response. Because keep in mind, for those who hate the truth, the truth will sound like hate. Indeed, you might even suffer for speaking the truth in love. This again is why our chief motivation needs to be love for God and love for the person, not ourselves. And oh, my prayer is that we would be a church who does this. Speak the truth and love for God's glory. And, and I'll get it. So, and, and, I, and again, I, I, I believe in, in the context, it's, it's, when it's saying truth, it's referring to the truth about who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. It's, it's, sound theology. And I just, we need this. It's, so here's what it looks like. Someone at church, a friend of yours, they're reading a book. And as you're looking at the contents of the book, you realize, you know what? This is errant. This is, this is a human scheme. What would it look like to speak the truth and love in that situation? Now, tell me more about why, you, why you're reading this book. What, where, where are you gleaning from it? And then out of a love for God and a love for them, I said, you know, brother, I, I must show you, have you considered what the Bible has to say about this? And, and see how there's a, there's, there's a disconnect here? I, I'm, I'm speaking the truth of Or in personal relationships. A person believing some kind of lie of how they ought to interact with those closest to them instead of what God has clearly said in his word, in love, out of a love for God and for them, friend, have you considered what God has to say about this? And then that we would be receptive. Remember, what's the first thing Paul identifies as what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? He says we should walk with what? Humility. What a, what a glorious thing it is when we're walking in humility, we're speaking the truth in love, so if someone speaks the truth in love to me, either about something that I'm doing wrong, a sin in my life, or something I'm thinking that's off, that in humility I would say, thank you, and I receive that. You know what happens in that moment? The body's built up. Oh, may that be found true of us. Faith when a church puts these four actions into practice, Christian maturity will blossom 
in the life of the believers. May we be found faithful to do the work God has called us to do. Amen? Let's pray.